we're going to answer tonight, pose, and then answer is, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with us that relationships are so hard? We were made for them, created for them, and yet they're so difficult. Our text is uh, Genesis 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 21. I'll skip around a little bit uh, toward the end. I trust that you're smart enough to follow along. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What's this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. And he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, now skipping down a little bit, uh, Cursed is the ground on, because of you, verse 17, In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And then verse 20, The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Okay, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together. Father, we thank you that uh, you've given us your word. And uh, we come today, Lord, approaching it uh, humbly. Uh, Some of us perhaps uh, wary of the word and uh, not in a place where we're easily trusting it. Others of us, Lord, thirsting, longing uh, for life, for joy. Lord Jesus, be gracious to draw near. Uh, Show us yourself in your word. Show us our need for you. Open up our minds to see what your word says. Open up our hearts and soften it, Lord, to trust you. I pray these things in your name. Amen. One of my favorite authors uh, is a man named Walker Percy. Um, One of his last books was this book, Lost in the Cosmos. The last self-help book. Of course, it wasn't the last self-help book, but um, he was being funny. 
Anyway, uh, the book is set up as a gigantic quiz. The first page is like five questions, and if you still need more help, you turn to the next, and it's 15 questions. If you need more help, then you can read the rest of the book. And somewhere on page nine, he poses this question. And I pose it to you. So listen carefully. You have to choose, okay? You're going to have uh, two options here, and you can make four choices. One, the other, neither, or both. So the first option. Does this describe you? You are extraordinarily generous, ecstatically loving of the right person, supremely knowledgeable about what is wrong with the country, about people, capable of moments of insight, unsurpassed by any scientist or artist or writer in the country. You possess an infinite potentiality. You're beautiful. I'll just do that in there too. <laughs> B. You are of all people in the world, probably the most selfish, hateful, and envious, i.e. you take pleasure in reading death notices and hearing of an acquaintance's heart attack. You're a little too young. Okay. A devastating breakup. There you go. The most treacherous, the most frightened, and above all, the phoniest. Now answer this question as honestly as you can. Which of these two sentences most nearly describes you? Check A. You're beautiful. Check B. You're phony. Check C. Neither. I refuse to be classified. Check D. Both. I'll give you a second. You've had a second. Okay. If you checked D, both, you're among the 60% of all respondents that said both these things are true of me. Now I'm going to assume that held. That about 60% of you said, more or less, that's true. I am great, and there's something wrong with me. And he asked the question, how can that be? And I asked the question, how can that be? Relationships are a mess. And I think the simple assumption is that somehow in the interpersonal dynamic, things go wrong. It's the communication, misunderstanding. We get in a group and everything goes wrong. So the problem is here. I think the problem is more complex than that. I think we need to ask not only what's wrong with us, the interpersonal question, but also what's wrong with me, the intrapersonal question. What is it about me that inherently makes every relationship difficult? Why has every relationship I've ever been in in my whole life been hard? Is it everyone else got a problem but me? Or could I be part of the problem as well? And so what we're going to do tonight is uh, look at what's wrong with us. And I think this is really important. And so this is, might be one of those messages that's a bit of a downer for you. This is not going to be the cheery, happy message. Because um, I'm talking about what's wrong with you. And yet I think this message uh, offers us hope. If we do not come up with a sufficiently complex, realistic answer to what's wrong with us, then we will give simple explanations for why our relationships go wrong. Do you understand? If I don't have a complex answer for what's wrong with me in our relationships... Whenever things go wrong, I will find some simplistic answer. They, t they tend to fall into three categories. It's their fault. <laughs> she changed. That, he wasn't who I thought he was. It's the blame game. The problem's over there. So we blame the other. Or, B, we blame God. Or fate, if we don't believe in God. We'll say something like, it just wasn't meant to be. Meant to be by who? So you blame some God, or some force, or some chance. But... Uh, it's not your fault. Or if you do take some responsibility, it's not, I wasn't the person I was supposed to be. It's more self-pity. It is the, no one loves me. I am a giant turd. I am unlovable. 
No one's ever going to love me. I suck. And all of those are too simplistic. And, and the Bible tells us that, that the reality uh, that ruins our relationship is far more complex, but we can understand it. And tonight we're going to look at it in Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to see that realism regarding relationships requires admitting our personal ruin. And yes, I did try to jam as many R's into that sentence as possible as a personal challenge. You know how hard it is to say that sentence? Realism regarding relationships requires admitting personal ruin. I could have picked some other word besides ruin, but I liked it. Ruin. So, that's what we're aiming for. What is the nature of the mess we've gotten into, and uh, how am I responsible for it? So we're going to talk about the character of sin, the corruption of sin, and lastly, a covering for sin. And, and again, this is not going to be your typical, well, it's not actually typical. Uh, I'm not a very cheery person, I'm sorry. Um, but this is not going to be a happy, cheery message. Instead, I am, we're doing heart diagnoses here. And there's hope on the back end that understanding what's wrong with us, that God can be at work to change us. Okay? So first, uh, the character of sin. And here I'm talking about the essential nature of sin. How do we understand what sin is? What is sin? It's a word we don't use very often in our culture. We've dismissed it. We think it's uncouth. Uh, there are better psychological explanations, according to others. If I'm going to use the word, we need to understand it. So what am I talking about? And so when I talk about sin, I'm, I'm talking about a couple things, and we see them easily in our text. And the first thing we see is that sin, fundamentally, is a misplaced trust. Okay? In verses 1 through 4, uh, we see, up to this point, we've had a perfectly blissful existence. Man and woman living in close communion with God and one another, uh, fulfilling the purposes for which they were created. They are perfectly ruling creation. Uh, it's joyful. It's wonderful. They enjoy communion with one another. And uh, into that perfect reality intrudes uh, this creature, this serpent. And behind it, we'd have to guess, some dark power. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast. And he comes to the woman and speaks to her. And we can see by the nature of his words that his intent, his strategy, is to introduce doubt, lack of trust, disbelief. Did God actually say, did God really say? You can hear it in the tone, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. The way it's worded, uh, he's asking, he's implying, God is not telling you the truth. Because I heard he said something different. Did he really say that? God is being dishonest with you. His strategy here is to undermine the relationship of trust that they have. And a really interesting note you see, and if you look through the chapter you'll see this, that everywhere, except in this little exchange, God is called the Lord God. That's the name he gave himself to this couple. It's not only God the creator who made them, but the Lord part is he's the king. And the Father that loves them and provides them. It's this relational name. It's close to like father or dad. Um, in an analogous way. And uh, in this account, the serpent just calls him God. Did that abstract deity thing really say? And so he introduces not only disbelief, but distance into the relationship. And then we see the woman, Eve, uh, latch onto this in verse 3. Um, no, he said, God said... You shall not eat of the tree. And then she goes on and reproves him, but twists it a little bit, which is a little disconcerting. She actually makes God harsher than he really is. She says, he said you can't even touch it. Well, actually, God didn't say that. So, 
Something's at work in her heart. And then uh, this evil being, uh, perhaps emboldened by this, goes ahead and flat out denies what God has said, saying, you will surely not die, or you will not surely die. And he lays a motivation behind this mistruth that God has said. He's basically saying, God doesn't want you to see and know. God is being selfish. God's intentions are not good. God is not trustworthy. God is not trustworthy. He's not good. You shouldn't believe him. And so the first characteristic of sin is a misplaced trust. And unhinged from that relationship of trust, we see what happens next is her natural passions, which were created good, her passions for intimacy, for knowledge, for beautiful things, begin to run amok. Unhinged from the context of a working relationship, uh, his pleas, the serpent's pleas, uh, for her to grasp, to take, uh, catch, and take in her own heart. Verse 5, God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, she was thinking objectively, she would say, that's interesting. Well, I'm already, I'm already like God. He created me in his own image. I don't see why I need this. This is what Genesis 1 tells us. Uh, and he's appealing here to her sense of, or desire for autonomy, to live independent of God. Why would she want to do that? God's been nothing but good to her. But the desire is beginning to catch. And then in verse 6, uh, he says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Well, that's very interesting. In chapter 2, uh, God says all the trees are like that. Every single one of them is beautiful to behold and good for food. And, and wise, desire to make one wise. Well, she lived in a relationship with God. Uh, simply living with him in the context of the relationship, she had all the resources she needed to make that happen. But unhinged from the context of trust in her good God, these desires misguided her. And so she disobeyed and led her husband into disobedience as well. And also we see, lastly, the character of sin is that sin misleads us with promises. It, it makes false promises. Not completely false promises. This is the nature of a good lie, by the way. A good lie is one that has a half-truth in it. Just enough to catch you and pull you. And then reveal to you later, well, I wasn't being completely honest. And so the promise here is that when you take this fruit, in verse 5, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And she takes the fruit and eats. And in verse 7, their eyes were both opened. And they did know. But it's not clear that they knew good and evil. What's clear is that they knew they were naked. They've been naked before. The scriptures make a big deal about it, by the way. It was wonderfully blissful. It was awesome. It was a display of intimacy that would have shamed us. They were naked and not ashamed. It was amazing. And now, they're ashamed. They're ashamed. They go and, and do these silly, feeble, desperate efforts to hide themselves, sewing fig leaves together so they can hide. So here we learn something about the nature of sin. It's all about misplaced trust. It leads us to distrust in the good provision of a God, to distance ourselves from Him, not to believe that He cares for us or will provide for us. And unhinged from that relationship, our desires, which were initially good, our desires for intimacy, our longing for joy, those are all good things. Unhinged from that relationship, they run amok. And they whisper to us, do whatever you must, to fulfill me. And I will deliver. And they don't deliver. They deliver just a little bit. But then the consequences on the backside 
or shame. And corruption. And that's uh, what we learn next. Uh, We'll see that in a second, that sin corrupts. A little further illustration to to show you about the nature of sin, the character of sin. This summer, my family and I, uh, well, at the summer, just a couple weeks ago, it seemed so far ago, it was just long ago, it was only two weeks, right before school started, my family went on vacation. So 90 degree days and sunshine seem really distant now. Uh, We vacationed at the beach, and on one wonderful afternoon, we took our kids, I have a three-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old, uh, to an ice cream store. It was a small island, and all their food was bad except for the ice cream places. So we went there a lot. And I think this was a Monday night, one of the first nights we were there. And this is a soft-serve place where the ice cream is really cheap and huge. So for like $3, you get a cone where the cone stops here and the ice cream goes to here. As they're making this, I'm thinking, that's not a good idea with a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So out the door they go to sit on the patio while I wait for my triple berry Sunday, which was enormous and gluttonous. And sure enough, I open the door outside, and I'm, I'm greeted by screams of horror, tears, hysteria. Both my kids had lost it. I look down, there's ice cream all over the patio. And this is where the object listen comes in. My son's three. Uh, he's growing in his complexity as a human being. He's a uh, You'll hear this in a second. And uh, we try to reason with them. Look, it's okay. Calm down. It's no calming down a three-year-old or a one-year-old when they lose their ice cream. The world is over. No, calm down. We're going to get some more. Calm down. But you can't make promises to a three-year-old fast enough. Unhinged from the relationship of trust that mommy and daddy are actually caring for him and going to get more ice cream, his passions led him insanely into thinking, I will never get this. I must do it myself. So he gets up and starts to go into the building. We have, one, we have some rules, but one basic rule is you cannot get up and run away when we call you. It's dangerous and it's foolish, and you're not allowed to break relationship that way. So he runs to the door. He's like, bye-bye, I'm leaving. You walk through that door. We're going home. He opens the door, and we go home. Ugh, utterly horrible. It was a horrible evening. And Luther and I pledged we're never going back. Well, two days later, we changed our hearts, and we're like, oh, okay, we'll go back. But we've got to prepare Caleb. So he sat Caleb down and said, Son, we're going to get ice cream again. But if something bad happens, you can't act that way. We'll get some more. It'll be okay. You're not allowed to act like this. And Lydia said this all in Russian. I don't know if you know my wife's Russian. And we're raising our kids bilingual. So I didn't have any idea what they were saying. <laughs> and uh, at the end, she's like, Do you understand? And he answered, this is like two minutes, he answered with this minute-long gobbledygook nonsense, of which I caught this, and it was hilarious. We go get the ice cream, and the fire shoots out, pow, and spank the Jesus. I was like, spank spank the Jesus. Like, I've, and my wife and I looked at each other and said, we're wasting our time. He can't comprehend what we're saying. (laughs) This two-minute long lecture was a waste of time. And what we should have simply said, and it would have been much more effective until the heart of the matter was, Caleb, you can trust us. You can trust us. Bad things happen. It falls apart. We'll get you some more. Just calm down. You can trust us. So the character of sin is that we don't trust God. And we let our passions carry us in other places. And um, sin is at work in your heart trying to convince you that God is not good and trustworthy. And, and it's the nature of your heart then 
desirous, created for good things. Uh, to desire those things, sometimes to desire those things more than God, so that you're willing to try and use God to get them. And if, we, if you're willing to use God to get good things, a God who's good to you, who's only been good to you, how much more is that true of your natural human relationships? If God has been good to you, who you can trust is one to give you good things, and you want to distance yourself from him, but you want his good things. How much more true is that of your natural human relationships? Well, uh, we're going to spend just a few minutes talking about the corruption of sin, how sin corrupts. Actions and ideas have consequences. And, and we see that the, the actions of this first couple and their rejection of God's love and provision for them affects them. It affects everything. And, and the first thing we see, jumps out the page on verse 7, is their shamefulness. That sin introduces shame into the natural order. This couple, they were created beautifully in God's image. They were given the task, the responsibility, and the equipment to rule all of God's creation perfectly well. It's the best job ever. Okay, uh, and, and they were they were made for intimacy. Um, and here, all of a sudden, there's shame. They're trying to hide from one another. In verse seven, and and then in verse eight, uh, Adam goes and I'm sorry, you just had to deal with that. I'm not smart enough to switch it. So take my word for it. And in verse eight, Adam goes and tries to hide from God. He uh, the text tells us. That he hears God, the sound of God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hide themselves in the presence of the Lord. Now this not only shows their shame, but they're trying to hide from God. This is the God that visited them daily and spent time with them. They had an intimate relationship. It shows their stupidity. Sin makes you stupid. You can't hide from God. This is his garden. Where are you going to hide? This is his place. You're his people. So, it introduces shame into the natural order, into the hearts of the people. They now take up hiding in Adam, speaking, replying to God, who's saying, why, why are you hiding? Where are you? He says something very interesting. And, and if we're brave enough to admit it, uh, it's true of all of us. I hid because I was afraid. We're afraid. We're afraid of being seen. We're afraid of being discovered. We're insecure. We're afraid people are really going to see who we really are. And so we flee. Now, of course, some of you are much better than that than others. Some of you wonderfully gifted extroverts can just talk people's ear off and charm people. I, on the other hand, uh, being a misanthropic introvert, uh, talking about extroverts a minute ago, um, I just sort of do the self-deprecation thing and then go hide in a corner and watch everyone. So... We all have our own natural defense mechanisms for hiding ourselves. But you have them. I don't know what it is. Maybe you're the smart one. Maybe you're the busy one. Uh, we're trying to build walls of protection behind which we're safe. We're trying to show people our achievements and stuff so they won't actually see who we really are. Can you love me through my stuff, please? Don't really see me. And uh, along with shame, we see selfishness. And uh, this is painful. This is painful. Uh, the Lord God says to Adam, uh, Who told you you were naked? Why are you hiding? Did you eat of the tree I commanded you not to eat? And his response is really interesting inside. The man said in verse 12, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. 
It's interesting. God asks Adam first because he's holding Adam chiefly responsible. And where does Adam put himself in the chain of causation? Dead last. The woman. Okay. First of all, it's never a good way, guys, to refer to your wife. (laughs) The woman. Uh, One chapter earlier, you can turn back and look at this in Genesis 2. This is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. This beautiful moving poem, this exaltation when Eve is brought to Adam, he can't contain himself because of the joy, the intimacy of this relationship. Now, she's just the woman. (laughs) The woman, I'm blaming her, gave it to me. And I'm not done blaming God. The woman you gave to me, gave it to me. You got that? I blame the woman. She's chiefly at cause. And then, and then you, too. And then uh, I'm, I'm sort of to blame, but I'm way back here at the end. I ate it after all that stuff happened. This is selfishness at its best. This is inherent narcissism. And it marks all of us. We're all deeply self-protective. To the extent that we can get out of it, we will spin everything. This is the first human spin. Here it is. Spin. Self-justification. We see this, that Adam is trying to make himself out to be a victim instead of uh, responsible for this act. Regarding our talent for self-justification, uh, Michael Foley has written, The talent for self-justification is surely the finest flower of human evolution, the greatest achievement of the human brain. He's being ironic, in case you didn't get that. When it comes to justifying actions, every human being acquires the intelligence of an Einstein, the imagination of a Shakespeare, and the subtlety of a Jesuit. We're really, really good at self-justification. At passing off blame on others and excusing ourselves. But it still sticks. You're protecting yourself. You threw your wife under the bus. You're blaming your good God who gave you a wife as a gift. All because you're selfish. So the corruption of sin is their shamefulness. Their sinfulness, and lastly, their painfulness. And the pain in this text is pretty apparent. I mean, some of the stuff we've already seen is painful. The shame. I'm one of those guys that has a very sensitive shame meter. Not everyone's like this. Not only can I not stand my own shame, I can't stand other people's shame. So, like, for instance, I can't watch The Office. I can't watch Ben Stiller movies. um, Because they're all about shame. I mean, like, any moment he's going to do something stupid, I'm like, ah, i got to leave! I can't watch that! It just hurts. It's painful. Well, the pain is worse. It goes on. And, and we see that with the couple. The woman will experience pain in verse 16 in childbirth. The man in verse 17 will experience pain and toil and suffering in his work. And this is a, a frustrating kind of pain because God created man and woman to do what? To tend the garden. To fill creation. To bring blessing through child raising and through work to extend the blessing of the garden outward. They were called to fill the world with blessing through their children, through their labors. And those two things have been frustrated. The two things that mark you as people will be frustrated. And if you don't believe me, go home and talk to your dad about his work and your mom about her children. Maybe she won't be completely honest, but it's hard. It's harder than it should have been. It's harder than it's supposed to be. It's frustrating. And if you're a romantic, you might possibly be crazy enough to get this 
romantic idea that, oh man, all the world's against this first couple. But there they are, arm in arm, facing the cruel, harsh realities of this world against them. Isn't that romantic? There's something wrong with you if you think that. Because the text says in verse 16, they're not doing this, they're doing this. This is your fault. In verse 16, God says, your desire is going to be for your husband or against your husband. But his desire will be to rule you. He will rule over you. And the way that text is reading is, you're going to want to control each other. You're naturally going to be trying to control and use this relationship. You're going to be vying for leadership. And instead of a relationship where you're naturally, mutually working toward one another's good, you're going to be scraping by using one another, fighting with one another. So, shamefulness, selfishness, and painfulness. I was reading uh, the wonderful children's book, uh, The Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. Anyone read that? You should all read it. Not now, you're too busy. Read it this summer. It's just beautiful. It's a beautiful book. Anyway, in one of the stories, uh, Rat and Mole, who are good, unlikely friends, are walking. Uh, Mole is just a great friend. And Mole left his home and moved in with Rat, who lives along the riverbank. And they took this long excursion, and they're out in the middle of nowhere. And they're just walking down the road one day. When all of a sudden, as Rat's talking, as he's prone to do, and Mole's this nice, quiet, obedient little fellow, Mole is struck in his steps and just stops, electrified. He doesn't know why. And, and he gets this weird, strange sensation. And then he first smells it, and then he feels it. And then he slowly begins to realize what it is. That his home, that he had so long ago abandoned to go move in with Rat, is nearby. And it's calling for him. So, uh, perhaps you haven't been away from home long enough to know what that feels like. Maybe some of you are homesick. But uh, for, for a mole, it was paralyzing. It was calling. And he didn't want to go home to live. He just wanted to visit this place where he felt so comfortable and was himself. Do you have any kind of ache or longing like that? Does your heart yearn for something like home? Like the psalmist that we read at the beginning, do you pant and long and thirst? Does, does your heart ache? Are you aware how much you want? Are you aware how much your heart wants? How you thung, th- hunger and thirst for life and joy and peace, uh, what, the, what the Hebrews would call shalom, the way things are supposed to be? You all do. Because your hearts were created for a place like Eden. You were made for that kind of reality, where relationships worked, where everything you did was marked by purpose and beauty and communion with God and others. And that's been ruined, and you will never get it back. There are no substitutes today. Where's the nice, happy catch? Well, sorry. That's just the way it is. There isn't... There's no recovery of Eden, of the way things are supposed to be. Not until the end of time, uh, when God comes and sets everything right. And we need to, to grasp that reality. We don't know how much we lost. We don't know. I mean, we, we can't imagine how good it was. So here's the warning. Because your heart was made for a place like that, and because it hungers and thirsts and longs for life, you're going to be t- tempted at times to take not only work or things, 
but even people and relationships, and say, please fill this void in my life. You have got to save me. You have got to give me joy. And the danger here is no person on this earth can do that. If you're trusting some individual or some relationship to meet all your longings, you're not going to allow that person to be who they really are. You know who they are? They're a screwed up person like you are. If you want a real relationship of intimacy with them, you have to allow them to be the messed up person they really are. They are not your savior. That doesn't mean the relationship can't be good. It means it will be best when you both admit who you really are. We're prone, because of our corrupted hearts, to try to recover that joy and intimacy and fullness in our interpersonal relationships. And if we're not careful, we'll end up using people. And we even catch this in our language. After we break up, perhaps, we'll say stuff like, it just didn't work out. What do you mean work out? It's a relationship, not a business agreement. It wasn't a gym routine. What were you looking for? Well, where can we find, and I'm going to turn this question a bit, because my contention is, by nature, because of what sin has done to us, we are by nature, in our relationships, takers. We're in it for us. We're selfish. And most relationships, we're in it for us. And we ask, when we're honest and things aren't working, what's in it for me? What are you going to deliver? When we're honest and confronted with what Scripture says, are we capable of confronting ourselves and, and saying, really, I should, I should be in this for other people? My relationship should seek the good and welfare of others. And where are you going to find the security and joy and peace to be that kind of person? To be in relationships for the good of other people. Last point, really quickly. Sin has made a mess of us. It's ruined us as persons. It ruins our relationships. And by ruin, I mean we're not the kind of people we're supposed to be. We've been stamped by it. We've been stained by it. We've not been obliterated by it. There's still a life to live. Relationships are good. They're good things. They're just tainted. But is there hope for us? And there is. And this text talks about it. So take just a moment. Chapter 3, verse 15. God makes a promise. This is insane, folks. Okay, what's happened? God's created this beautiful, wonderful couple, trusted the whole world to them, and pretty quickly uh, they turn their back on him, trust a talking serpent, uh, say they'd rather have God's stuff than him, reject him, lie to his face, refuse to accept personal responsibility, blame God for it, and what does God do? God makes a promise. It's beautiful, wonderful grace. Chapter 3, verse 15. We read that God will send someone, an offspring of Eve, of Adam, who will bruise the head of the serpent. He's going to send a champion. There will come someone in history from this family that will set these things to rights. And in the last couple of verses we read, Adam and Eve about to be expelled from the garden into a harsh world, covered with shame and sin, What does God do for them? He covers them. He covers them. He gives them clothing. Not just to cover their shame. To provide for them in that harsh reality. 
And that's the kind of God we have. A gracious God that's willing to cover our shame and our sin at great personal cost to himself because this champion that's to come, Jesus, wins on our behalf by giving himself away. What's the hope for our naturally narcissistic, selfish hearts that tend to take and use and self-protect rather than serve and love others? It's that adoring God, trusting God, loving Jesus, trusting Him, we become like the one we trust. We betrayed Him. His heart remained out and open toward us. He continued to give. And when we take that message into our lives, it turns our naturally selfish, narcissistic hearts slowly outward so that we love God and we love others well. Okay, pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for your great work. We thank you, Father, that uh, you did not give up. What a mess we're capable of.